part history and part detective story, my father's name is a moving narrative full of the mixture of anguish and fulfillment that accompanies any search into the history of slavery. In this intimate study of a black Virginia family and its neighborhood, today's speaker vividly reconstructs moments in the lives of his father's grandfather, Edward Jackson, and great-grandfather, Granville Hundley. In the process, the author brings to life the stories of the people of Pennsylvania County during and immediately after slavery. Lawrence Jackson is a biographer and literary historian with special expertise in African-American life in the 20th century. He is the author of several groundbreaking books, including Ralph Ellison, Emergence of Genius, The Indignant Generation, A Narrative History of African-American Writers and Critics, 1934 to 1960, which won the 2011 William Sanders Scarborough Prize and the Black Caucus of the American Library Association Award for Nonfiction, and the book under discussion today, My Father's Name, A Black Virginia Family After the Civil War. His latest project, Chronicles of the Absurd, The Life and Times of Chester B. Himes, will be published in 2015. Lawrence is collecting information for some other projects, including a history of the United States colored troops, 1861 to 65, and a cultural history of the American, African-American arts renaissance in Brooklyn from 1986 to 1995. He's professor of African-American studies and English at Emory University in Atlanta. And I think it's appropriate that today, when he's speaking about family history, that he brings many members of his own family here today, including his sons, Nathaniel and Mitchell, who are down here in the front. So please join me in a very warm VHS welcome to Lawrence Jackson, who will speak to us today about my father's name, a black Virginia family after the Civil War. You know, I would like to thank um, Nelson Langford and Graham Dozier and Larnett Lee for welcoming me and making the uh, lecture this afternoon possible. Um, it's really, I, I, I want to say it's a, it's a homecoming. I, I used to live, I didn't remember the address, but I used to live at 4626 Stewart Avenue in uh, 2001 and uh, was a great uh, devotee of the fan or to the fan, I suppose. Um, and at that time, I was doing a lot of writing <clears throat> on uh, Patterson Avenue at a coffee shop. I think it's a Starbucks now, but it was an independent coffee shop at the time. And I was working on a biography of Ralph Ellison. Actually, the first, I say the first biography of, uh, of Ralph Ellison. Um, and in, in 2001, <clears throat> um, I was uh, uh, recently married and, uh, you know, had this large project underway. I was an English professor at Howard University. And one summer afternoon, um, June 22nd, I drove down 360 to my father's birthplace, to Danville, Virginia. And I was just sort of, you know, just sort of wandering around. And I'd always sort of been fascinated by the Civil War era. Uh, my mother began my interest in military history when I was about five years old, the same age as my um, sons, uh, Nathaniel and Mitchell now. Um, Mitchell's five, and Nathaniel will be turning eight uh, next week. And uh, I used to collect um, Civil War soldiers, uh, this, the same ones actually that are in the gift shop for the, um, for the VHS. I was, I was uh, pleased by their taste. The, 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 as you all know, the Virginia Historical Society, I mean, the taste here is immaculate. And uh, I'm, very, I'm pleased to be standing before you. Um, and um, it just uh, was always very curious about that, that era. <clears throat> and my father passed away when I was in, in college, in my last year in college. And I, uh, you know, had begun to be interested in cultivating some of the things that were important to him. Um, my sons were asking me about breakfast this morning. I said, oh, you know, those are scratch biscuits. Granddaddy used to make those. And uh, well, what else did Granddaddy uh, make? Uh, he used to make fried tomatoes and fried potatoes and fried apples and, um, you know, so on and so forth. <clears throat> but that, that um, afternoon, I was actually thought maybe I could find my um, my grandfather's uh, headstone in the cemetery 
but I couldn't remember um, where he lived. And so I sort of was wandering around Danville, and I found the cemetery in Danville, and I sort of, you know, walked along the, uh, the, the aisles and looked at the uh, headstones. And then uh, my mother reminded me, oh, well, you know, your grandfather didn't really live in Danville. He lived in Blair's which is, you know, sort of on the outskirts. And you all know that, you know, I mean, the cities aren't in the counties proper, and, you know, we're, we're into the rural area when we get to Blair's. Three years later, um, we were expecting our first child, and we didn't know whether it was going to be a boy or a girl, but we decided very early that um, if we had a boy, we'd name him after my dad. And um, uh, at the end of 2004, I was researching at the Humanities uh, Center, the um, National Humanities Center in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. So I was actually living in Durham, which is about, about 50 miles away from Danville. And I was having a conversation with two historians uh, fairly regularly. One man's name is Jeff Carici. And Jeff um, is a British guy who had written um, one of the commanding studies of uh, tobacco farming and the agricultural practices of Southside Virginia in the 19th century. And the other person was a man named Timothy Tyson. And Tim, uh, who's from North Carolina, had written these remarkable uh, 20th century studies of black and white life, one of them about uh, someone who ultimately had to flee the United States, who was in exile, um, Robert F. Williams, because of his more radical views, um, basically he believed in self-defense for African Americans, and another book uh, Tim wrote was about um, really a macabre tragedy that had taken place in his own neighborhood, um, where his next-door neighbors lynched an African American in the early 1970s. And in the conversations that I was having with them, I found that uh, their knowledge and their expertise <clears throat> about black life in Virginia and black life in North Carolina, in the South, I mean, it was so detailed and textured, and they paid such homage and reverence to African-American laborers. And though I had known my grandparents, uh, you know, I mean, I think rather well, um, and I had a great deal of respect for them and a great deal of respect and reverence for my own parents, I didn't have that sense. I, I, I didn't have that, um, that curiosity. And you know, I was having these conversations with Jeff Carici, and he was talking about you know, sort of the, um, the agricultural practices from the 19th century. And I, I didn't know what my uh, grandfather's parents, I didn't know what they did. I mean, I knew that they were farmers, right? I knew that they, they farmed. They must have farmed, right? So there was all there were there were questions that um, that bubbled to the surface, especially that that late fall in 2004. And so then the first week in December, I was actually preparing to return to Atlanta, um, preparing for Nathaniel's birth. He's born on February the sixth, and um, I I took a trip. Um, I took a trip to 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 Danville, and so there you can see this. <laughs> You talk about talk about proud father. I have to look at my watch now so that I don't digress, right? You know, talk about had to, uh, proud proud father. Um, so I decided one afternoon, you know, like I say, the first week of December, I would drive up to uh, to Danville and see if I could find my grandfather's house, which I knew now was in Blair's. And so I sort of, you know, drove up the old routes, and I just remember going through, passing through Hillsboro, and you know, you're getting very much the uh, sense of colonial history <clears throat> as you go along the um, the roads. And by the time, I mean, it was it was winter, so you couldn't see so much um, crop production as I will I will later show you. But you begin to get a sense of the way of life of the place, and. Um, some of the beauty and the magnificence um, when we would be on the road, and we were on the road uh, quite a bit as children, and I would always say to my dad, you know, well, why can't you drive the car any faster than 55, and well, you know, why do you have to go so slow? And, and one time, at least, he said to me, he said, well, you know, I like to look at the trees. And I, you know, I don't want to look at any trees. <laughs> but I find that as I, as I grow older and as I raise children myself, that um, the trees are actually quite, quite wonderful. Um, 
going back for me was a bit of an adventure, and I found that I was very much shaped and influenced by the work of Toni Morrison, the, uh, the, the Nobel laureate. Um, if I had more time, I would have prepared a different slideshow. I'll just share this with you. Yesterday, we went to Washington, D.C., and we capped the day in Washington with a visit to the office of the Poet Laureate of the United States. So it was like the highlight of my day, and I hope of my kids. But um, that's my colleague, Natasha Trethewey. You know, we, we work together, and now she has this um, really eminent and well-deserved post. But that was very nice. Um, but Morrison's, Morrison's work, but especially two books for me, Song of Solomon and Beloved, um, were very much an entryway uh, back into another generation's way of thinking about, um, about America, about American history, about the American past. And I wasn't sure when I went back to Blair's that afternoon if I was um, uh, uh, presumptuous, if I was arrogant, if I was overbearing. You know, I was constantly having to make an adjustment and to, you know, think about the the social class or the religious affiliation or the racial identity of the person I was, I was asking for information. And I'm asking literally dozens of people, if you were a black man in your 80s in 1975 and you lived by the railroad tracks, where would your house have to be? Okay, I mean, so I, I, I just drove around, and I saw a group of people, and I stopped the car and said, hey, you know, can you help me? Um, so it was, a very, it was also a very humbling kind of experience. Lo and behold, at the end of the day, um, I found um, Granddaddy's old house. And it was, um, it, was, it, it was not what I expected. In fact, at it, 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 the first part of the day, I convinced myself that he lived in a mobile home. Um, then I convinced myself, you know, that he lived in a cabin. I mean, I, and I, you know, I have like these concrete memories. Of course, the concrete memories that I, that I have and, you know, my, um, I shouldn't say the, the, the witnesses, I mean, the people who have shaped my memory, my mother and my sister are here with us, so I might be corrected at any moment. Right? <laughs> but I remember walking the train tracks and we used to collect the spikes, my dad and I, and we would give them to people for gifts. And I remember that my grandfather had an outhouse, and those things were very unique to me. And it was a fascinating journey, and you know, sort of the, the end of it, I, I would just say that for an African-American from urban America, um, I, I grew up uh, in Baltimore City, but you know, one of the defining features, a, defi a contemporary defining feature that um, uh, arrived to our landscape uh, about the time I was finishing high school was um, an above-ground subway station. And, and if you went there today, you would say, oh, you know, I mean, this must have characterized a person's life there. And it was, it was actually, it was relatively late. But still, I mean, you know, a feature of urban contemporary life, you know. But if you, if you, if you take an urban African-American and you take them to the rural South, you know, there, there are all kinds of ghosts that crop up. Um, uh, there's, all, there's a kind of conjuring that takes place in the imagination, very much apart from reality. And I remember asking uh, two men <clears throat> whom I would have thought of as being, you know, like people who were uh, getting ready to join the Confederate Army. Um, I remember asking them, uh, you know, well, can you, can you help me? You know, where would this house be? And not being, you know, sure that they would they would want to help or that they would uh, help if they, if they knew the information. And the, um, but what was fascinating was that the, 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 uh, the ownership of the house was proved to me because the person, the man who was living there, he still had the electric bills in my great aunt's name. <laughs> and, you know, was it 40, 40 years later, there, there, they, there it was. So this was about four o'clock when I, when I got to the house and I thought, man, you know, Eureka, I found it. And what I, what I didn't know was that the story was actually beginning. And uh, about a half hour later, I was knocking on the door of my father's first cousins. Um, my dad's first cousin is uh, William Younger and his wife Lillian. And um, 
they were living in the house that we'd visited after granddad's funeral. And, um, you know, the one detail that my mother had reminded me of, you know, immediately um, clicked with Lillian. And they opened, you know, in a brief period of time. I came right at dinner time, you know, it's sort of like they, they, they um, made themselves available to me. Um, one of the really wonderful things was that Lillian, she had her hair, she had her hair up because she was getting ready for work on Monday. And I said, oh, I'd love to take a picture of you all. And she, she took her hair down so that I could, could have the picture. Um, it was really a very touching and uh, kind of an important um, gesture. Um, and they, they, uh, they took me over to their niece's, niece and nephew's um, home, side by side, uh, two-room bungalows. And in the back of the house, in the back room, you know, sort of like in a sacred space, in a place that was preserved, um, there was a picture of two brothers, um, Nathaniel and Hugh. And um, uh, the picture of my grandfather was just, it was overwhelming to me. I'd never seen the picture before. And uh, it was moving for a number of reasons, but one of them, You'll get a chuckle. Here's your real good chance to chuckle. One of them, I don't know, you can't, you can't see it, right? You see the, but anyway, you can see the, the outlines. You know, the, my father used to joke with me. He would always say, who cut your hair? Was it somebody at the Maryland Institute for Art? He would always <laughs> tell me these jokes. But, you know, the, uh, the fact that Granddaddy and I shared something across time, I mean, I found that to be really remarkable. Um, that was not my dad's style, you know. My dad was a—he uh, you know, was a—he um, was a formal, formal man. But with that uh, photograph, it was sort of like energy from from the past, from another period of time. It um, it came alive, and I sort of go might go a little bit more quickly now. Um, so I wanted my, and then and then Nathaniel was born, and he got the name, and and then uh, not so long afterwards, Mitchell was born. And I wanted them to know their grandfather. Um, you all might be familiar with this saying, which was a haunting saying in the, in the Western world. I mean, first it was a haunting, it's a Latin saying, it was a haunting for the Romans. It was also a haunting saying for Virginians. Um, as uh, Mr. Weinshek, if you come to see his lecture, I mean, I'm sure he will remind you. Avum Ethiopum Regeneravit, the Ethiopian grandfather returns. And um, this thing about grandfathers, of course, I've written a book on Ralph Ellison and the grandfather's riddle <clears throat> and what the, the past means to African Americans, but especially the past of enslavement and the past of um, lineage and blood ties and connections and the complexity of that past. It, um, it made itself um, uh, very real and aware to me. So I began to wonder about um, my grandfather and my father, and then I began to be able to wonder about my grandfather's father. So you all know that I'm a, a, um, um, a professor, right? I teach at a university, and like all teachers, sometimes you're sort of frustrated with your students. I had a class that started at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we were reading for the semester slave narratives. Uh, the best-known slave narratives are written by Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs, and they're really they're extraordinary documents. The Jacobs document incidents in the life of a slave girl. She grew up in North Carolina. I mean, it's it's just it's absolutely extraordinary, especially the detail. <clears throat> and in this this class, they were falling asleep. Now it was early in the morning <laughs> for for college students, right? You know, it's like 8 a.m. is the same as 5 a.m. for college students. It was early in the morning. However, the Emory campus is carved out of, I don't know how many acres the Emory campus is, you know, maybe it's 40 or 40 acres or something, you know, where you also have the Center for Disease Control and you have a large um, hospital and medical complex. Um, but we're in suburban Atlanta in a neighborhood called Druid Hills. The Emory campus is carved out from what used to be the Payden Plantation. And uh, when you get um, beyond the, um, the veterans, administration hospital. There's a street called Butler's Lane, and on Butler's Lane is where the slave quarters used to be, or the quarters for enslaved people. 
uh, I found it astounding that the students could take the weight of the history so lightly. And, and maybe I shouldn't, you know, just lay blame at their door. I mean, that, that it meant so little to, to contemporary Americans, maybe even to most of us. So I thought that if I worked a little bit, that I might show them um, something like a human, a more human account, or a more local or contemporary account, one that um, might not seem quite so remote. And I started to go through the census database, and I was actually looking up um, my mother's family. Uh, again, we're at the Virginia Historical Society. Um, on my mom's side of the family, uh, her great-grandmother is a woman named Maud Jones, and uh, my, my, uh, my cousins are here as well, who live in Richmond. And um, Maud Jones's mother or grandmother was a woman named Amanda Farah. And Amanda Farah was enslaved in Mecklenburg County, and the Farah family papers are here in our library. But we, we don't have, the, you know, this library, the Virginia Historical Society. We don't have, um, for very many of us, or maybe for most of us, we don't have that sort of direct access to the past and what we have are these different census documents. And I showed them the uh, census for a guy named Nathaniel McClinn. And I you know, was just sort of talking about that and was saying, well, look, you know, your own professor, you can see where his ancestors were actually actively enmeshed in the logic of American society in the 1850s and the 1860s. And let's see if we can get some energy behind this discussion. I don't, I don't know how well it worked, okay? But for me, it, it took me in another direction. <clears throat> and I found um, the document that has the Jacksons, um, the, most er the earliest uh, uh, official document with, um, with a Jackson, the 1870 census and Edward Jackson. And I, I should say that um, the only way that I was able to get to my grandfather's parents' names, sort of roundabout, um, when I was asking um, Lillian and William, well, you know, do you remember, um, do you remember anything about Aunt Sally's parents? And they said, well, you know, not so much, right? In fact, um, you know, they remembered very well their um, Aunt Sally's brothers and sisters, but who her parents were, you know, it, was, it, it, it just it wasn't there. But um, I got my dad's birth certificate, and I sort of went through a little bit of a process to get the information from an original birth certificate. I mean, I, I imagine that most of us here, I'm, I'm already sort of like calling myself a Virginian. You all better watch me. I'm being slick, right? You know. Um, but I, I imagine that most of, most of us here today were born in Virginia. And if you go to get your birth certificate or if you go to get your parents' birth certificates, if they were born... <clears throat> especially, I guess, if they were born prior to the 1950s. But, you know, they will, the state will give you a computerized form. And the originals are actually far richer in terms of information. Like on the original form, you know, you might have the street address and you'll have the uh, grandparents' names and, you know, sort of other kinds of stuff. But that doesn't make it out to the, um, to the birth certificate. So I found the, uh, the names um, Ned Jackson and Les Hunley Jackson, L-E-S-S, -S, Hunley Jackson. And I you know, couldn't quite come up with them in census. And eventually I got to the point where I understood that Ned was Edward. But if you look at Edward Jackson in 1870, okay, we're, we're, where are we? We're in the subdivision north of the Dan River in Pennsylvania County. Um, and the post office is... Ringgold and Laurel Grove, and we'll do a little bit more about place in a moment. And Edward Jackson is right here at the bottom, right? Edward is 15, male, black. They're, they're really three color designations that you would find in Virginia, black, white, or mulatto. And he is designated as a domestic servant. Edward lives in the household. I, I, it's the um, 629th, looks like 629th. Um, household with Isaac Ferguson and Betty Ferguson, and uh, they are living very close to and more than likely on the land of Levi Hall, who is a farmer. Um, Isaac is a farm laborer, and uh, Levi Hall 
Um, his property is worth $3,000, and then he has, you know, the value of his estate is $3,000. And as you can see, Isaac and Betty and Edward, they, they don't have anything. So that was a clue to, you know, sort of who Edward was or who he had been. Um, but it wasn't very much of a clue because when I did a little bit more digging, I couldn't find evidence of, like, Edward being owned by Levi Hall, who was a slaveholder. Uh, he owned about 18 people in 1860. So it was another, another portal, if you will, was opened up and uh, more investigation. I just sort of wanted to brighten things for a moment. And this is uh, my dad's mother, Virginia Jackson, when she was, uh, shortly, before, shortly before her divorce, when she, her name will change, but I wanted to have her up as Virginia Jackson. My grandmother was born in 1907, so you imagine that her parents must have felt very optimistically about the state that year, right, or something. You know, we've got to name her Virginia. <laughs> so here's Pennsylvania County. Um, anybody from Pennsylvania? Really nobody. Or anybody have sort of ancestry that goes back there? Okay, a couple people. Very good, very good. Nathaniel raised his hand. It's, it's, good, it's good man. So this is the, uh, the county courthouse is in the center of the county uh, competition. Pennsylvania was the largest uh, land area county in Virginia. And uh, from 18, I might, I, I might not be completely accurate. I'm again, not as sharp as Jeff. But sort of 1850, 1860, 1870, maybe up to about 1880, once the bright leaf uh, strand of tobacco is introduced, they are producing uh, the sort of the, between Pennsylvania and Halifax, they're producing the, the largest tonnage of tobacco. So the, um, the county seat for the state is here at competition. The name changes to Chatham uh, about 1880 or so. And the White Oak Mountain range along is here, sort of slanting diagonally, and then we're, we wind up spending a great deal of time with this portion of the state. Pennsylvania is not a very well, to this day, not a very well mapped county. I mean, we're in the age of Google Maps, um, and the Google Maps were, were quite, quite useful. But um, if you wanted a 19th century map of Pennsylvania, these two are about the best that you can do. Uh, here again, this one has more detail. <clears throat> you can see Birch Creek, Laurel Grove, Spring Garden, Sandy Creek. Um, so this is sort of the rough area. And so again, I'm just sort of imagining what would life have been like if you were a person at this time, a black person at this time, living in this place. Um, a little bit more detail in this general area is a 1926 postal map. This one, uh, I think the first two that I showed you are from the Duke um, University collection. One of them is probably at the small special collections of Charlottesville, but I, I can't tell you chapter and verse. This map is at the Library of Virginia on Broad Street. And this is a postal map that gives you Spring Garden, Chestnut Level, and uh, I don't think it says, it might say Keeling. I can't quite see from here. Um, and this is, uh, you know, again, almost the first quarter of the 20th century. This one is fascinating because it does try to give you small symbols for buildings and also some, some people's names or family names who were on the postal route. It, however, does not correspond well to, you know, sort of waterways or the um, north-south dimensions of the streets or anything. I mean, it's very different from the other maps. It, but it enables you to get a bit closer. Um, and so I don't know, I, I imagine everybody has sort of an interest in genealogy, but these are tools that we use. We have the census records. I mean, we know what the rough contours or the inhabitants of the neighborhood. And then we try to find out a bit about the geography, the spatial geography of the neighborhoods themselves. Um, and then we go to the historical record um, to keep trying to fill in. So one of the things that, you know, I have tried to make great use of are newspapers. And here again, the digital revolution makes um, very many newspapers available to you. <clears throat> the newspapers in Danville burned at the 
end of the 19th century. So the best you can do are sort of random miscellaneous collections of the, um, the was it Danville B? Um, and I think it's a, there's a Danville Republican, uh, there's maybe a News and Register or something. It's a handful of papers, and you have literally a handful of copies of these papers from the 19th century. I wanted the story to go as far as it could go, but since for African Americans, the 1870 census is the watershed, the moment when everyone is enumerated by name on the U.S. census, um, I decided to do as much as I could with the period, you know, sort of following emancipation. And this was just a remarkable document from one of the newspapers that remains. It is a runaway advertisement, but slavery has ended. Ran away from the subscriber about the 5th of June, a mulatto boy named Jim Weir, 13 years old, said boy was bound to me by the Freedmen's Bureau and a reward of one cent will be paid for his apprehension and return to me. All persons are forewarned against deploy, employing or harboring him. So I imagine that um, you know, the idea was that he didn't want anybody else to give this guy work, but it is an interesting um, document reflecting the relationship between landowners, freedmen, and the Freedmen's Bureau. And uh, uh, one of the things that I was up against in my work was that um, there, was, there were so many works um, detailing the emancipation, still detailing the emancipation you know, as, a, as a total failure and freedmen run amok. And my sense that for my ancestors and for Edward Jackson in particular, that the events of the 1860s and 1870s um, leading up to the um, withdrawal of federal troops in 1877, that they were a bit different. Um, Pennsylvania County, even though fortunes were made there, and one of the wealthiest American families had a number of farms and uh, mansion homes there, the Hairston family, um, and another uh, well-to-do family was the, fam the Wilson family, um, and the Sutherland family is another uh, wealthy family from Pennsylvania. But you didn't find very many mansions. And of course, you know, I, th I think that for people who are living outside of the South, the, the uh, almost the mirage of Tara looms large. <laughs> but this is actually an example of a, you know, a federal style mansion from the 1840s that was built there. And as you, again, architecture folk, you know, you know, I mean, we're sort of we're into you know, different kinds of, you know, sort of ornate uh, Greek revival things by then, but we still did pretty um, sort of uh, 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 traditional, very conventional kinds of architecture in Pennsylvania. For freedmen, of course, this would have been much closer to the norm and what I assume is the dwelling um, that Edward Jackson was living in with Isaac and Betty Ferguson. Um, I thought that this photograph is especially important because it's, it's you, you have to understand that the chimneys are wooden and that, you know, sort of fire and smoke inhalation are always, you know, sort of grave difficulties in these uh, humble structures. Um, looking for African-American lives involves, in the, in the era of enslavement, in the antebellum era, of course, involves dealing with the Schedule II of the U.S. Census where African-Americans or Americans of African descent are enumerated <clears throat> by um, rough age, by um, uh, gender, and by color. And again, people are, are designated as either black or mulatto. Um, being designated as mulatto, of course, does not necessarily mean that a person was biracial or you know, had one parent who was known as a white person and one parent who was known as a black person. It, it generally seems to designate what to the census enumerator was a person who was lighter than the norm. And of course, the norm shifts and changes from neighborhood to neighborhood and county to county and state to state. When I went back through Pennsylvania in 2009, you could still see, you know, sort of the, I mean, I imagine that this is a, this is a late, late 19th century, early 20th century structure, um, still with um, the tobacco crop 
um, you know, sort of this, this valuable crop that, that made the fortunes for, for the county. Uh, much of the work that I did was at the Pennsylvania County Courthouse in Chatham, and I even had <laughs> some researchers to help me from time to time. And, uh, you know, we would sort of take the, um, the legal volumes, they were sort of over here, and then you'd pull them over to the desk, and, you know, you sort of flip through and try to get the, the information that you can. Um, one of the documents that was so important to the study and that took the study in two directions was the marriage license of my, uh, my grandfather's parents. Um, and they, uh, they married in 18, 1870, 1877, um, 1877 or 1878. Um, and they have the names of their, their parents. Um, there's Edward and there's I was hoping to find out, you know, like, well, where are the, the Jacksons? Who are the Jacksons? And Edward says that his parents, name of husband's parents or uh, the, the male's parents, he says that they are Sandy and Jenny Dickerson. And that was a, a, another layer of mystery. Nathaniel Mitchell on the courthouse desk. So he had that nugget and he didn't quite know what to do with it. But Celestia's parents, um, Celestia's father, Granville Hunley, he was an enterprising kind of guy, and he bought his 40 acres, and <clears throat> he paid for it, right? He bought the 40 acres in 1877 from the person who seems to have owned him, John Hunley. And sort of, I would say it's about um, four or five years into the research, and I decided that it was moving in two directions. One was to be able to figure out where this parcel of land was that Hunley purchased, and the other would be to see, you know, who Edward's parents possibly could have been. I thought that maybe, you know, Edward seemed like he was an orphan. He's not living with Sandy Dickerson in 1870, and uh, maybe he just liked them, and he didn't know who his parents were, or something terrible had happened to his parents, and he decided to name those people because you wanted to have somebody to fill the foreman with. In terms of the land and the plot of land, though, this was the document where Granville Hunley's land was, um, was you know, laid out in the uh, county courthouse documents. And it was fascinating because even though it was quite precise for a contemporary person, it told me very little about where the land was. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, it's sort of this classic legalese from the 19th century. Um, in the county of Pennsylvania, adjoining the lands of Dr. Edward Williams um, and, uh, and William Farrell, um, John, John Hubbards, and others, beginning at the Smith Old Path, where Dr. Edward Williams' line crosses the same. Thence the old path to cross, to cross paths that lead to Hubbard's Mill, then a straight line to a large poplar tree to William E. Farrell's line at an elbow, thence Farrell's line to John Hubbard's line, you know, and so on and so on and so on. I said, I'm never going to find this, right? Um, in 2009, I'm coming back through Pennsylvania County and um, looking to get a couple of good pictures you know, winding up the assignment, I've visited the library at UVA, I've visited the Library of Virginia, I've been to the Virginia Historical Society, um, I've been to the county courthouse, you know, I say I got these documents, this information, I'm not always, not completely sure what to do with it, and let me just sort of meander the paths as I drive on my way back to Atlanta, and it'll take 29, and so I go down and, um, it's late in the day, <clears throat> and I'm driving along a, a gravel path uh, past a creek and a couple of uh, dilapidated old barns. And I see one house, and I stop, and I say, well, let me just, I don't know, ask and see what's going on. The dogs come out, uh, and then the dogs are called off, and I get out of the car, and I walk over to uh, a woman, and I... Ask him, introduce myself or something, you know, telling this story all over the place. And she says, oh, um, let's just say, she, let's call her Grant. We're the Grants. This is Edward Williams' house. And Edward Williams' house 
is not only preserved, it has been restored. And Edward Williams' gravesite is in the yard. So I actually did find a uh, very tangible marker um, for the old land. And it seemed to me, and, and what was fascinating was that I'd been sort of crossing this, this property for almost 10 years at this point. I mean, even the, I think the very first time I was down there and got lost, I sort of wandered, you know, sort of back along these roads. But this is Edward Williams. Uh, uh, he's got like 400 acres or something, or 200 acres. And then this seemed to be the Sandy Creek. And then this was Hunley's um, plot. And uh, this was Levi Hall's. And so one of the, you know, in my brighter moments, one of the wonderful things that it seemed to me that happened was that Edward Jackson and Celestia Hunley must have known each other as children because they lived, you know, so close to each other. And so I thought that that was, that was a, nice, a nice element of the story. Um, I just learned that there is a water wheel from the Sandy Creek in Pennsylvania here in this library. And so I'm, I'm hoping to see that at the conclusion of the lecture. And um, this when Hunley left a will. He apportioned the land, the 40 acres, in sixth to his descendants. And um, there's Celestia's there at the bottom. He gives my, my daughter Celestia Jackson, you know, sixth of the whole. And they seem, Celestia and Edward seem to have lost the land by 1900. Um, Hunley passed away in 1893. So <clears throat> the second half, of course, is the <clears throat> like, where are the Jacksons and who is this guy, Sandy Dickerson? You know, as I said, I, I hadn't imagined very much of a connection. I couldn't really do so much with the information that I had. I was at the library at the University of Virginia, and I went there looking for these maps, such as I've shown you, and I was trying to figure out the spatial geography of Pennsylvania so that I could come up with the Hunley map that, that we've just looked at. Well, at the end of the day, I was madly racing through the, uh, the um, special collections boxes. Right? And you know, anybody that's done any kind of research, or if we go upstairs and we get a reading card and we go to the, to the tables in the, the, the manuscript library, you know, there are a lot of rules about the way that you handle um, rare materials. And often you can only handle, you know, sort of one at a time or one box at a time. And if you go to the New York Public Library and you try to use those collections, they actually will only go and get things, I think it's three times per day. So you already have to have turned in your list the day before and then you have to be very lucky. And if you go through this stuff quickly, you know, you might just sort of be sitting at your desk for a couple of hours. The last thing that I looked at at the um, Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections at the University of Virginia was a box, and the box had no um, index, right? It, there was, it only said, these are Pennsylvania County ledgers, or Pennsylvania County accounts. And I started going through, and um, you know, it just, it could be from the middle of the 19th century, it could be from the middle of the 20th century, you know, there's no sort of order, it was very random. The last document that was in the box was a, uh, this is about, it's three by seven, three and a half by seven, a calf-bound account book. And he's still sort of trying to puzzle out precisely what this is here, but this is V. Dickinson. Um, it's, a, it's a ledger. And Vincent Dickerson was the son of Griffith Dickinson, who was a Revolutionary War hero. He's a prominent minister in Pennsylvania County. Um, uh, somebody that I would say was a good guy. Well, why would you say he's a good guy? Well, Dickerson went out of his way to try to add a, a human feature or a, a kinder, gentler kind of slavery to an inhuman system. So in his will, on August 29, 1843, he says, in disposing of my Negroes, I desire every feeling of humanity to be regarded in parting husband and wife, parent and child, right? And he goes on to say, you know, I'm directing to the executor at the time of valuation, you know, to sort of keep these things in mind. And he lived in a house that was recorded um, in the 1930s during the uh, WPA era when the photographers went out and they tried to get the 19th century structures that were still standing in Pennsylvania. But 
Well, on June 14, 1860, um, Griffith Dickinson's son, I don't know why exactly. I mean, he, he owed a lot of money. Uh, but he sold his father's estate, and on the 14th, he sold to a man named um, Hall. He sold him his property, Sandy, for $1,690. Sandy was a blacksmith. At least the 1870 census that has Sandy Dickerson on it has a blacksmith named Sandy Dickerson. And $1,690 in Pennsylvania was about the, the absolute limit, the ceiling of what would be paid for an enslaved man. Um, the, you know, they had the gradations, an extra man, a number one man, a number two man. <clears throat> so this would be very much like an extra man. I think there was somebody else that's um, sold for a significant amount, and in their description, they're called you know, um, Big George or something. You, know, you mentioned somebody that's very strong or something. But it was one of the great ironies of enslavement that the people that made something of themselves, I mean, really tried to, uh, to become experts at a craft, they became too expensive to keep together as families. So it, Sandy and Jenny uh, were sold to different people. Um, and, you know, there's no... There's no um, absolute concrete information because you know we don't have that kind of uh, that kind of um, data available. Uh, however, Jenny does not appear in the county again in 1870, and Sandy is remarried with um, with other children. And so it simply occurs to me, or the thing that I made of it was that there were a couple of other pieces of evidence. Um, there was a guy, the Hubbard's Mill, that's in Granville Hunley's will was um, the person who owned that mill was married to a woman whose maiden name was Jackson and whose father had sort of given the will or made the will available to, um, to Hubbard. But it just seems to me that Edward Jackson um, might well have chosen the name to erase a very painful afternoon when his family was broken apart. And that's, uh, thank you very much. I know that we have time for some questions, and there are people with microphones uh, in the aisles if you have a question. And I'll do my best to answer the question, but you know, it is, it's tough. It is tough. <laughs> this is not a question, it's a comment. My name is Barbara Branch, and I'm from Cambridge, Virginia, which is, a part, which is in that tobacco belt. Cambridge was the third largest market of that bright bat <clears throat> tobacco that you mentioned. I've started your book, and I haven't finished it, but what it has done for me, it has made me realize how little I know about my family. Mm -hmm. And I had that conversation with my brother this morning. I live in Richmond, and um, when I told him where I was coming today, I said, we need to do this better. And he told me some things this morning about our grandparents that I didn't know. So I thank you for that, because you have made me realize that this is something that I need to do, and that we as African-Americans or blacks, we need to do this better. We just don't know enough about our lineage and our ancestors. Thank you very much. I appreciate the comment. Thank you. My name is Anthony, and um, I'm a, I go to VCU off campus uh, with Dr. Sean Yusey for African-American study, and also I'm involved with that, um, research for 
genealogy workshop at the uh, State Library. Uh, this year, two years, I just completed my ancestry uh, family tree on my mother's side, 1838, all the way back five generations. On my uh, father's mother's side, five generations, born in Richmond Ward, Richmond City, back in the 1850s. I thank you for clearing about the word mulatto, because I found that censors are uh, black and white, it because of shade of color, not necessarily they had a, a family member who was biracial. Thank you for clearing it up. And um, I'm also encouraged about being here today, hearing your uh, lecture. Um, my goal two years ago was to learn more about my ancestor and their accomplishment and contribution, uh, you know, c coming over here from Africa, Nigeria, Ibu tribe. Um, I'm proud to say it. So I'm encouraged by your work, and hopefully I'm encouraged that I can do the same. Uh, one day I can share my story uh, as you did yours today. Thank you very much. I should say something. I, I did mean to say something about the Igbo, and uh, after a, a lecture about something else um, last year at, the, uh, at Boston University, some colleagues encouraged me to take the DNA test, which I did do, which I did do. But the, uh, I, was, I was anticipating if anything came back, because very many people, you know, you don't, you don't get so much. I mean, you know, there's, it's just it's, it's impossible to, 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 to find out anything of, of uh, sort of, I guess, accuracy, you know, with the, um, with the test because of so much of the mixing. But um, one of the things that was fascinating about the Ebo was that in Pennsylvania County, um, everybody, I, I mean, I hope that you all understand this or you have a sense of this. So the landing point for, um, for, the, for the Chesapeake, you know, it could be Annapolis, 450,000 Africans brought to North America, right? Not stopping in the Caribbean necessarily. Um, and the landing point would be Annapolis or Bermuda, Bermuda 100, Bermuda 100 um, on the James River across from Shirley Plantation. And, uh, and, you know, it would be wonderful if we could get together, um, you know, to a plaque or a memorial or something. Because one of the things that you know that they're doing is that, you know, uh, bodies are being unloaded. Um, everybody always said you could smell the slave ships, you know, well before they got there because of the stench. And then people are working in the tidewater, sometimes for generations, and then sometimes they're immediately going um, to southern and uh, western destinations within Virginia. And uh, one of the things that's remarkable about the Igbo is that one of the ways that people trace the Igbo is that they um, believed the religion, the cosmological view um, among the Igbo, southeastern Nigeria, the Niger Delta today, um, people leaving from the ports of Bani and Calabar, was that it was the worst thing in the world that you could do was draw someone's blood, you know, like even your, your awful enemy. And so when you find all of these poisonings, that's often the, the Igbo, you know, sort of at, at deadly work. And in fact, um, uh, there's an important book called Murder at Montpelier that talks about the, the murder of one of our presidents, uh, the murder of his father, um, you know, who seems to have been poisoned by um, the Africans that he enslaved. And they were, some of them were executed and some of them were sold out of the state for, for that crime. But in Pennsylvania, you find these fascinating naming patterns um, that seem to borrow from the Igbo. Uh, one of them was to call a male child doctor. So I'm looking at these census figures from 1870 and I'm figuring, oh, well, you know, um, in a world that accorded you so little respect and prestige, you know, well, how do you surmount that? Everybody's always going to use your first name. You know, you'll never be Mr. You know, you'll never sort of have a last name. Your lineage is not important. Well, you know, call him doctor or governor for your know, first name or something, right? And, uh, but actually, what um, the practice, it borrows from the, um, you know, sort of the sacred science of the Igbo. And, you know, as you can imagine, right, the doctor is the, the, uh, the medical person, the, uh, the spiritual person. And it seems to, you see it repeated over and over in Pennsylvania, and it seems to borrow, you know, sort of from that tradition. You also found some people, not very many, but you found some people in the 1870 census who have African names or African-seeming names. Again, one name was Aniki, A-N-I-K-Y. This is a woman that lived very close to Edward Jackson. And, um, you know, I mean, again, like a homonym for the Igbo name, Anike, 
um, which is still quite um, prominent and popular. But those uh, connections, they were very, um, very powerful and important for me because when I went to college in 1986, I mean, the, the, the gospel at the time was that, you know, all of the uh, African survivals had been erased and that um, black people had no, no African culture that, you know, sort of could be, could be pointed to. You could never find out about, you know, sort of your ancestry on that side. And I'll just mention the, the DNA thing, it blew me away because I took the Y test, the patrilineal test, and the correspondence, what it came back and said was that the highest rate of correspondence was among the Dogon and Mali. And, I, you know, I mean, you could have bowled me over with a feather. Uh, you know, obviously that's the area of civil war today or, you know, great uh, strife and violence. But, uh, but it's fascinating to think about somebody who would have made a journey um, coming from, uh, say, a civilization like uh, Mali uh, or coming from one of the Muslim societies in Senegal or Burkina Faso and then winding up in Virginia. Um, you know, somebody who perhaps, um, like very many cases that we have, people who had memorized major portions, if not the entirety of the Quran, people who were writing an Arabic script, I mean, people who had traveled through uh, Timbuktu and Jiao and Jenny and these famous ancient cities who would have had a very completely different worldview to, say, an Englishman um, you know, starting a farm after having served, you know, sort of seven years indenture. I mean, who wouldn't have had the same, possibly might not have had the same access to, you know, sort of higher learning. I mean, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And the, the more that we know about this, I mean, the richer all of our American experience um, will become. Uh, this is Denise Walters. I'd like to know as a follow-up to your last statement there, uh, for those of us who are gathering those family stories and traveling around, do you have any advice on pulling all that together and publishing just as you did? Thank you. So two things, um, Denise. Um, one, I would try to save everything that you possibly can, and since it's relatively easy and inexpensive to record people digitally and to distribute that, you know, sort of among family members to try to get those stories. And to reach people, um, you know, let's say you have relatives who are in their 70s or 80s or 90s even, to reach people precisely where they are. I mean, you know, I was always, my grandmother was born in 1901. I, I assumed that she had been enslaved herself. And I'm saying, you know, well, tell me about slavery. And, you know, it, if it's not about slavery, I don't want to know about it, right? But to, to talk to people, you know, sort of like precisely where they are. If they begin with the grievance that happened at the 7-Eleven last week, then that's where it, that's where it starts. And, and to, to give, give folks time to, to get um, parts of the story out, uh, my mother will share things with me um, you know, I think somebody already said, I mean, with these revelations, um, and, and I'm thinking, my gosh, I mean, you know, boy, I, I wish I had known that or I, I hadn't thought that was true. I mean, you know, the things, they, they come out slowly, and that's an important part of the process, too. Um, the other side of it, I would say, is to try to have, to try to think of it as fun and perhaps I don't want to say to scale back your expectations about, um, about publishing the work, but to think about something that feels good to you first and then to worry about the other things as they, uh, uh, as they happen. Um, I, was writing, I was writing a book on uh, African-American literary history between 1934 and 1960. It was a 240,000 page, 240,000 word uh, project and it was at the it was in press, and I was waiting for the um, I was waiting for some reports or some part of the editorial process to take place, and there was a gap of about five weeks or something. And I said, "Well, what's the best way to spend the next five weeks?" I had a sabbatical, and I just you know I started getting all these Freedmen's Bureau microfilm, and I was looking for the newspapers, and then I was able to take the trip and you know collect the stuff. So. I was doing it as almost a recreational sideline. I mean, something that was just sort of deeply joyful for me personally and that I hoped I would be able to share 
in a competent way with my um, children, I would be, you know, I mean, you all are a wonderful um, audience. And like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm home in Virginia. See, you see, I'm working it in. I mean, I was saying to them earlier, I said, what do you have to do to be considered a Virginian? I mean, you know, watch out the <laughs> first families of Virginia. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the professional historians, you know, I don't know the kind of use they would have for, for what I've done. And they would have, you know, sort of like a, a very different um, set of questions. I, I hope that's helpful. Well, this is, uh, I hope it'll turn into a question, but it's really a comment. This is uh, just so enlightening to me. My name is Pat Blair Funk, and my daddy talked about uh, Pennsylvania County. He grew up there at Stony Mills. Mm -hmm. And at, at the it was literally the mill for Pennsylvania County. It was the post office, and his daddy was... Um, had had was the postmaster and the uh, superintendent of schools. But it's been so romanticized to me through my years that Stony Mills in Pennsylvania County, there was no place like it. I mean, that's my history. And here you're telling me about it, and it's wonderful, but it's also bringing down to earth the realities of before the slaves came. I never heard the word slave. I heard about how they all played together, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that's true, but thank you so much. Thank you for your comment.